Yeah, uh, so yeah, so part of it is on the older adults, right? You've you have to you know reach out and and want that, and it, it's 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 hard to look at. But I think, but part of the responsibility is for family members and society or groups that endeavor to do this. Then you have to reach out. You have to say, uh, you know, the John Prine song "Hello" in there. You have to say "Hello" in there. And and keep doing it. I, I I think sometimes in our world of of help is like, well, I offered my help and they didn't want it. No, you're like a, a beacon. You're like a lighthouse. That that message has to keep going out, keep going out periodically when the light comes around and it beams. And I, that's what recover. That's the was the recovery process for me. It wasn't that there was a lot. Finally, I don't know. Somebody must have said something. I know what it was that got to me. I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a clinical geropsychologist, which means that I'm a psychologist who specializes with older adults and families. And this is the Psychology of Aging podcast, your go-to resource for mental health and aging. Each week, I have the incredible honor of interviewing experts in the field of mental health and aging, neurology, neuropsychology, and then also people with lived experience. Lived experience is an interesting term because we all have lived experience. Today, I'm interviewing Jim Klassen. Jim is an advanced level wellness recovery action plan facilitator and certified older adult peer specialist trainer. He brings over 40 years of experience from the workforce development field and has worked with youth, welfare recipients, people returning home from prison, and persons impacted by trauma, mental health, and substance-related challenges. As a certified peer specialist, Jim brings his own lived experience, sharing his recovery journey openly as evidence that recovery and wellness are both possible and achievable. His journey has led to his encore career, he calls it, as a facilitator of peer support for other older adults who are experiencing mental health and substance use conditions. This is a really tender episode. In our conversation, Jim and I talk about our experiences with mental health. And Jim also talks about the importance of music in his own recovery. And at the very end, sings a beautiful song. And I have to tell you, this song is so sweet. It's so warm and loving. Yesterday or this week, my six-year-old, she has a severe dairy allergy and um, accidentally drank some of her little brother's cow milk, and we had to be in the hospital for a day. We, it was pretty intense. We, um, I had to give her an EpiPen and then take her to urgent care. At urgent care, we had to give another EpiPen because she was um, having trouble breathing and her, had a lot of GI issues. And, um, and then we had to take an ambulance to the children's hospital and be monitored for 24 hours. She's home and fine. She returned to school. Dairy allergies and other food allergies are no joke. 
But as we were resting in the hospital room, I was editing this podcast and I played Jim's song out loud for Lena. And that's my six-year-old's name and my husband. And Lena asked to play the song again because she thought it was so soothing and comforting. And so thanks, Jim, for soothing and comforting my little one with your beautiful music. Jim uh, shares at the end of this episode a beautiful song. And so I hope you listen all the way through to get to that glory, that masterpiece. All right, let's jump into the interview with Jim Klassen. I um, first learned about you at the National Council on Aging at their fourth annual Older Adults Mental Health Awareness Symposium. And you had a brief segment there and your warmth and honesty and um, your focus on wellness was so delightful. I thought, <laughs> well, you. I need to interview you. I need to hear more about your story. So thanks so much for being here. Oh, sure. Thanks. Will you tell us a little bit about you, like where you grew up and where you live now? Who's in your family? Sure. Yes. So I uh, I grew up north of Syracuse, actually, uh, sort of sort of semi-rural. It was still would have been then, you know, post-World War II, born in 1949. And um, um, yeah, I grew up in uh, North Syracuse or Pitcher Hill, actually, is what it's called. Spent a lot of time on Oneida Lake, so kind of a, a rural upbringing. Um, I had a mother and a father. Uh, my father was much older than my mother and kind of focused around business things. So, you know, those little father issues probably... <laughs> Uh, you know, persist. Uh, it, it, in 1955, he converted our house into a motel. If you remember those like fat, flat top motels that you saw in the 50s, or maybe you still see them in the in the countryside. So <laughs> we kind of grew up in this family business. So uh, to escape the rigors of of cleaning motel rooms and mowing the lawn and all of that, I, and probably other things. Uh, I spent as many as many weekends as I could with my with my grandparents and and we Regina we talked about this a little bit earlier right just this affinity uh, closeness uh, with older adults and what they their unconditional love for me and uh, and, and we were certainly you know they were factory workers so we're not talking about coming from money or anything like that but just the love uh you know the humor the acceptance and and I, as i look back on it the blessings of of growing up as a kid in the 50s in not, not the country country but you know just a lot of a lot more freedom than i think kids maybe experience today um struggled started to struggle some around those middle school years, socially and academically. And then very fortunately was able to go to a high school that was really very supportive and instrumental. One, one of the sort of benchmarks or stakes in the ground that I would say, you know, um, you, you know, helped me. Um, went to college, went to Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Did okay. I was. I would actually, if looking back now, I was depressed, but I didn't know. 
that I was, you know, experiencing a depression. My sister knew she was, and my sister, who's a year and a half younger than me, was actually in the hospital back then, electroshock therapy, and, you know, so trying to support her and uh, uh, and all of that. So, you, you know, increasingly, like in the 20s, you know, graduated from college, got married, and then sort of my stuff started coming out or, you know, mental health and behavioral health kinds of things, which, you know, includes the, the depression, which may be a, a family trait, but uh, perhaps uh, not sure exactly how that works and uh, self-medicating, uh, which own, and that aspect of my story only got worse, <laughs> I have to confess. Um, I will say, though, early on, I, I knew something was up, something was wrong, and did uh, seek help. But I'm not sure back then or where I lived that folks knew what help looked like or professional help. And certainly we know, and I know you've dealt with this too, it's a stigma and prejudice, not just with older adults, but just around just saying mental health. <laughs> is a is an issue right rather than just health and health includes all of these aspects and even these aspects that interact with one another but it's this dualistic world that we still live in i guess is like so if you say mental health that's that's a problem and it brings up all kinds of things so it's not something i discussed with friends or family but i did know that that you know that something uh, was up. Uh, had a successful career uh, in human services. Always worked, uh, you know. Probably, oh my goodness! Now you're reminding me of all kinds of threads or themes that I don't think about on a day to day basis. Most of my work was with young people, quote unquote. And again, we get into this the jargon, the labels uh, that we use and. Labels are for jars, right? It's one of the slogans we say around here. But quote unquote, disadvantaged youth, whatever that means, economically, you know, not doing well academically, you know, maybe high school dropouts or kids at risk of that. So after school jobs, mentoring, GED programs, conservation cores urban cores, work in teams, that, that kind of, that was, that was my uh, career and just so much really a terrific uh, career, but so many, but my secret lives, plural, you know, did, uh, you know, certainly managed to follow me and, and create all manner of, you know, of difficulties. Interestingly, not so much, a little bit with work, but not so much. I was fortunate there. I mean, a lot of my friends who maybe had drug issues or whatever, you know, certainly affected their employability. For me, it certainly affected family life because it's very difficult for families to understand some of the things that we go through emotionally, understanding those things as a, as a health concern um, and not betrayal or why are you doing this to us or what you know that that kind of thing so yeah um yeah will you say more about your the secret lives that you mentioned 
Well, I, I think that the depression itself was a secret life. And and you can probably tell from my affect, was just, this is an easygoing, cheerful guy, everything, it's all good in the neighborhood, you know, well, what, what's the problem? And, and, um, uh, and I, I was pretty good at doing that, right? And, and I call that, you know, with some kind of cynicism or sarcasm now is playing make-believe. You know, and I, I really got tired of playing make-believe. But the make-believe was that everything's okay. And I'm a hard worker and I've got and I'm doing this great work. And I and I was. Um, and I was treating myself with uh, 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 various substances that uh, I thought made me feel better. And maybe they did. You know, I'm not saying that those things don't work. They actually do sometimes for 15 minutes. And then <laughs> the consequences are, are worse than the problem that you're trying to, to solve. So some of those early, um, you know, behaviors of try, probably trying to cope with the depression is, is what it was, right? Get get high and, you know, and all of that. I'm, um, I'm not a professional musician, but I played guitar and sang since I was 13. And it's really one of the things that's another one of those kind of stakes in the ground that's really stuck with me very, very well. But, you know, along with that can be kind of some hanging out that might not, <laughs> that may not have been, you know, all that healthy. So that, that's what I mean by, by secret lives is, is using drugs and the machinations of doing that, of having to sneak off, of disappearing uh, for maybe several days, being on a real uh, a real roll or whatever. And I, I say that the, the drug use got worse over time with more serious drugs. And I'm just talking about, you know, smoking some weed and then, you know, playing the guitar with friends, talking about drug use that over time really becomes very isolated um uh, just it, it's not a social uh, thing and 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 and, and this way I, I was almost kind of laugh like people say well we were you want a party i said uh, it may have been a party for three months or six months after that it was work mm-hmm. and um and took me years to then that's why I say it took me six months to get was was probably the the worst worst of my my great urban adventure here in Philadelphia. I guess I missed that part of the story. Moved to Philadelphia in 86 just in time to get into some real co- trouble for a country kid. And even folks on the street that uh, would say, dude, you ain't built for this. You're going to last about six months. You know, they were about right. It was about six months of heavy usage and then 13 years to get myself unscrewed from that. And the the unscrewing is interesting because still then we talked about recovery as 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 meaning like drugs and alcohol, right? Back in the day. That's all that it meant. The meaning is now recovery has kind of expanded out to <laughs> pandemic proportions even. But back then it kind of meant that. And that's really what was presenting. You know, people wanted me to stop using. They wanted me to be good. And it wasn't, it was in those 13 years, 
what, what was required is to figure out that this is more than just that. Because I more, could quit. More than substance use. There was something. Stop, sure. Let's stop. Uh-huh. Stop for a couple of months. Stop for two years. Stop for five years. Really, Because not getting at what is going on underneath. And it's not until some very good people, and I'm talking about professional people, understood that this isn't one thing. You're not just a quote unquote, you're not just a drug addict. And we, we try to have in our, our, our person first language and recovery oriented language, we try to avoid that kind of things. But, you know, hi, I'm Jim, I'm a drug addict, right? Kind of thing. That was the, certainly the presenting issue. But there was all kinds of emotional family stuff and history that that went underneath that, that I'm still unpacking. I'm not saying that I've unpacked all of that, but uh, but that needed to be to have anything that looked like wellness and recovery over a, a more substantial uh, period of time. There is so much I want to follow up with you on. Can you say more about what your red flags of depression were? What were your own symptoms of depression? I kind of like to think of, you know, we have this criteria for depression. And then I think we all carry those of us who experience depression or another mental health condition kind of, it's like we have our own fingerprint of our mental health concerns. You know, I've had my own history of depression. It hasn't looked like I thought, even as a mental health provider, like I thought it should look. And <laughs> and I think yeah, it's my own my own fingerprint. True. So what is your fingerprint? Yeah, and, uh, well, depression? yeah, but, but I think it's so so true what you're saying of just thinking of these sort of diagnostic or clinical words that we use. And and I mean, what you're bringing up for me is just how lacking how they don't. They're not terribly descriptive, right? Because uh, probably because it's trying to describe a whole a range of ways that that it it might manifest itself in people. I guess you know, saying depressed was depressed, like absolutely fatigued. You know, uh, so exhausted. Uh, uh, you know, just I eviscerated even just to the extent of like just feeling like gone so not being able to get out of bed not being able to eat not being able to you know to wash um so that kind of physical and emotional just spent done i gave it the office but uh, you know kind of uh exhaustion but the other Part of it for, for me had to do with relationships, had to do with isolation, uh, not wanting to connect with people. Uh, um, you know, so that, that is, and that's a horrible conundrum there, right? Because uh, say absolutely what you need is human connection and comfort, nurturing, understanding, and and it just feels like every nerve in your body is such that I, I just I don't, don't even, please don't ask me how I'm doing for one thing, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just too much. So that is probably 
that that probably just describes it. And then, and and as I say, I looked for for professional help, but I also <laughs> looked for you know my own sort of self medication because it did offer some yeah. at least temporary respite and escape, but also meant more secret life too, because then people would might question my behavior. We can't have that. There's a saying, everybody has a page in the DSM. (laughs) And and for for listeners, the DSM is the Diagnostic (laughs) and Statistical (laughs) Manual um, that we use to diagnose people. And we all have a page in the DSM. As we were preparing for this interview, I asked you, what does recovery mean to you? And you had shared kind of multiple definitions of recovery. Can you you talk a little bit about that now? First of all, I think I fussed about the word recovery because being 72 years old and being in a in a recovery process for not always successfully I might add but in a recovery process for a very long time back in the day recovery meant you know just one thing if you said you were a person in recovery it meant it was drugs and alcohol right and that was the sort of the euphemism uh for it and um and again, like what we just shared about depression is this recovery is describing what recovering what, because some folks would say, listen, I never had it to begin with. So I don't know what you think I'm recovering. Uh, and also, and I explained to you, I had a heart attack, right? So, so we're recover. I mean, I just believe that if the word has any value, it does in the broadest sense of the meaning that we're all recovering from some a loss, from a head cold, from COVID, from substance use, the loss of a, a friend or relative, a loved one. Um, uh, I, you know, in that sense, we're all recovering. And, uh, and I think I said to you also that, and I know we're going to talk about RAP, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, is that I kind of embraced that because that was about, well, it is wellness recovery, but I latched onto that first word. So rather than describing myself, I'm a person in recovery. And then, you know, you got to go down that rabbit hole. What does that mean? Right. <laughs> but I'm a person in, in, in wellness. That's what I, I want in my life. That's what I aspire to. And that's what I try to practice is, is being a person in, in wellness. I so appreciate your critical thinking about that term for, to help us all think about it more deeply. You know, people with dementia cannot recover from, cannot reclaim neurocognitive functioning. Right. Generally, it's a degenerative condition, but you can have wellness living with that's right a degenerative condition uh, no absolutely you can st- you can still have what we really really need which is connection yeah you, you know uh just uh, on addiction and then we can go to alzheimer's you know uh, uh, dr gabor mate do you know gabor mate you know I, he's my guy saw him in person just blew me away so he is it's just and it's hanging up here over my desk addiction the opposite of connection and that 
I think, and I don't know, maybe it's probably not for everybody, but that's what it was for me. It was the abject loneliness, that disconnection with other people, a lack of, you know, a genuine connection with other people. And in terms of recovery or wellness or getting better, it was through connections. Well, tell us about that. Tell us about you had, it sounds like since high school, maybe experienced depression, then following that found a way to, to self-medicate through substances that added more chaos and harm and, and multiple lives. And, and then there was a 13 year process of working toward <laughs> wellness. Shall we just say wellness in lieu yeah, of recovery? Are we sure working yeah. toward optimal health? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so, so what was the inspiration you're saying? it was too painful to lack connection and yeah. what was the inspiration to to move toward health and wellness yeah. mental health and wellness well it does relate to those connections and it, it does relate to there was always it wasn't like i was clueless right maybe that like we say well he's clueless <laughs> and probably people looked at it and said and said exactly that but that wasn't true. I knew that there was something else. I knew something was missing or that something was, I, I hate to say wrong, but that something, you know, was off and, 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 and had for some reason had not had hope, had some sort of underlying seed of hope that had been uh, planted and I know um, I talked about the role of my grandparents in my life and a great aunt and uncle also. So there were, were I, I know we're getting to the older adult thing, right? Which I am now. I'm their age now. I'm older than they were, right? When they were, I thought they were old then. <laughs> they were, but uh, that the, those connections, there was something there that that stayed with me over time that I that I knew that existed. Um, and, um, so that was part of it. And others is, I mean, I talked about, you know, the exhaustion, the evisceration of depression, just the whole thing got to just be too much. And I I told you about what we talked about, like sort of the secret lives, plural thing, and, uh, just the, the loneliness, the isolation, the fatigue of playing make-believe, you know, of having a work life and then pretending to have a family life that looked good on the surface. Oh, oh, oh this looked really good. The suffering was on the inside. And who do you share that with That'll, that wants to even hear it? <laughs> right? um, uh, so that led me to search, to, to seek. And I say, initially it was professional help. And I do say this in my work now, because we work with both professionals and with peers, people with lived experience. Now lived experience becomes this other euphemism, right? So in my crew, if you say lived experience, we know what that means. Right? <laughs> we'll say more about that because now, well, now well, we're using terms bit, for aren't we all life. having a I see I this is why mm-hmm. I, I just fuss so much at language. Not that I have a better language for it, but 
it's all it is euphemism, like lived experience. Aren't we? Hopefully, we're all having a lived experience, right? For a while, anyway, <laughs> until we don't. So it just becomes this euphemistic way of saying this is someone who's experienced really big feelings, um, difficult emotions, has uh, had traumatic experiences or losses in their life uh, 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 that affect them in ways that probably dismay them as much as it may be, you know, their family or loved ones. Jim, why do you act this way? Well, because something's going on, I guess, right? So I was always thought that there was something to, to go after. So thank goodness, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, for that. And um, what do you suppose your grandparents implanted in you or gave you, yeah. you, you attribute them to being part of yeah, this healing journey? I know. Journey? Yeah. Well, they were a respite from a home situation that was not horrible, but difficult enough that, again, this is my best instincts, right? I mean, this isn't my bad coping. This is my good coping is that I need to go stay with my Nana and Grandpa this weekend. And I love them. They were, they, uh, I, I really don't know their, I wish I knew their backstory. I wish I, I, I had questions for them now. First of all, the humor. My grandmother was inappropriately <laughs> outrageously would say things that were were just funny and but they were also very they were very accepting and non-judge non-judgmental uh, uh, certainly of kids behave i guess they'd raised four of their own so by the time i came along it was like you know whatever uh whatever he done but they were no but i i shouldn't word it that way i mean these were good sort of you know german background i mean it was it was not strict strict but you know you, you knew what the boundaries were but helping my grandfather in his garden and that's something that I've you know always still been in love with and just there I mean they weren't effusively or overly emotional loving but you knew that they were loving that they loved you that they had you that that I, I was perfectly at, you know at home there and I just loved uh, being uh, with them. They were my, my mother's uh, parents and we, and we were close. They, you know, visited, we probably had dinner at our house, you know, all of those traditions of the fifties, you know, spaghetti on Thursday night and then, you know, dinner on Sunday and, uh, you know, and they would be there. My great aunt and uncle too, my, my grandmother's sister. Um, and it was, it, it sort of held up I guess, sort of an ideal of what family life could be that, you know, that kind of connection. The other thing I, I did want to say is, you know, in the seeking professional help. I, so I thought that's what I needed to do. And I did. And, and I did even in my 20s. I knew. But I don't think back then they quite knew what was up with me. I don't know. I don't think it was that complicated, but they didn't or or we didn't figure that out together, which I think is the other aspect, right? Trying to find somebody that's going to cure me is probably not going to work, but finding someone to work with, can we can we talk or learn about you and maybe we can work together towards some solution. So I knew I needed, you know, professional help. That's cool. Got it. Um, 
and I work with professionals now, right? Even in the peer world, we work with their supervisors that may be clinicians as well as the peers. And so I train supervisors, which I think, well, this is the most preposterous thing. They're going to look at me as like one of their patients or something, but I'm going to train them about supervising CPSs. So to get over that, what, what I usually do is thank them. First of all, thank you. Because there were times in my life I needed your help. I needed professional help. It was necessary. It was not sufficient is the issue. What is sufficient is what we're talking about here, peer support. So what's life after professional health? How, you know, what, what new relationships, what new connections or renewed connections, recovered connections perhaps with family. And I, that's me and daughter number three, very profound experience of disconnection and anger, rightful anger and reconnection uh, at a depth that's hard to uh, explain, uh, you know, how deep a relationship uh, can be. Are you willing to talk about that a little sure. bit? Yeah. Will, will you was... share, share about what was required to restore and heal that relationship so it could could build the trust needed to go deep yeah i so i train cps as certified peer specialists right and we, and we go into a number of of things you know, their motivational interviewing you know open ended questions reflective listening uh active listening uh, uh the fact that what the business that we're in is not curing, not advising, not fixing, just but being with, learning together, mutuality. And when I trained this course, I just, we just finished one online as well. And the guy's like, well, I don't know if I'll ever use this. Listen, I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm not working in a homeless shelter doing crisis outreach. Um, where this has most affected me is at home. It's in relationships. So with my daughter, the second marriage daughter is now, she's 31 now. She was a teenager during, you know, some pretty heavy duty nonsense, acting out, drug use, and what that meant in terms of home being here, not being here, people scared. Is he alive? Is he dead? Uh, so she was, uh, of my four daughters, every other one kind of were at an age where they could really get the, the brunt of this. So she was pretty, uh, pretty uh, angry with me, pretty done with me. And I can't use the language on the podcast, but we were, you know, she was this far away from me. And she told me, I know every boom, dirty thing that you, and I was already in this pure support part of process of wellness. And I didn't react. I wasn't reactive. I didn't try to defend. I didn't get angry. I didn't try to explain, just listen, just listen. 
and then time went on just you know not sure that it was a conversation or a series of conversations either but just being there for her right in ways that were i mean you can make all kinds of promises to people <laughs> right but if you're actually I, my thing would be don't make the promise just do it show up do what you're supposed to do and see what happens there's no guarantee. I mean, she could she could still be <laughs> angry with me. But and I'm close with all four of my daughters now, and it's, it's very, very fortunately. I mean, it does not have to be. But she and I are probably, you know, have just because of the timing that it intersected at that that kind of time. Um, connection again. Right, because she was hurt too. It wasn't wasn't just that I was hurting or that I was sick. Right, we we're both hurting. Mm -hmm. So being able to sh to share that vulnerability, to be able to be, for her to be honest with me, and for you to receive it. That that that's that's the space that makes that kind of healing possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for um. A lot of my friends and myself included have had difficult relationships with our parents. You know, my mom had a severe mental illness when I was growing up and still it's, she's very, she's in a very stable place now, which is wonderful and living in wellness. And, um, but part of her mental health journey led to some abandonments in my life and in my brother's lives. And the way that we, my mom and I were able to repair our relationship is that my mom really took responsibility for hurting us and hurting me. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure she's had this conversation with, I have four brothers with each of my brothers uniquely, but in conversation with me, she has been so non-defensive about mistakes made in the midst of illness. And I, I, that has granted me the opportunity to, to give her more grace in living a very, you know, she was a single mom, five kids. I'm a, I'm a married mom of two kids. And I'm like, that also has extended a lot more compassion from my direction toward my mom. I, I think life is the ultimate teacher of, of these, you know, challenges, but maturity on my part doing my own work and therapy and my part, you know, it was my part in healing the relationship, uh, kind of seeing my mom as a unique person outside of being, in addition to being my mom, just all of the challenges that she had. But I talk with my friends and my friends will share, like, I don't have the closeness, right? Like I, I'm still in a sort of detached place or um, a cutoff place for my, my parent. And there's some pain there. And and still wounds that haven't healed. And, and largely, you know, they'll ask me, well, what was it with your mom? Like, how, how are you and your mom in a relationship when there was so much loss and pain and abandonment and struggle? And I think because my mom could do the work, like my mom apologized, stood and listened, like you were describing standing yeah. and not being defensive and receiving it yeah. and then working and showing up and working toward healing in herself and in the relationship. Yeah. And I think that was, that's, and that's been a great teacher for me to, 
I'm not a perfect parent, you know, and when I make mistakes with my kids, how to show up for them and to be vulnerable for them and apologize. I, I think this, what you're talking about in healing these relationships that come in the, in the sort of storm of, of illness, like mental health concerns and substance use concerns are all illnesses. Right. And so in this, and some people like, you know, some people appreciate the term illness, others don't, I'm going to use the term illness because I, Mm -hmm. there is a biological, physiological, Mm -hmm. psychological component. Sure. And, and, um, and then I think what you're talking about, Jim is essential because you're talking about healing relationships and, and healing relationships, but also healing in the context of relationships. And that I think is essential to, to, to growth and connection. Yeah. And yeah, I do too. I agree with that. Yeah. You know, this, this, um, poet Rilke, I guess, right. Has this line of those who are willing to be vulnerable, move among mysteries. And, um, I like that. And, um, in, and I, I, I want to be vulnerable. Well, I, I see where, where that, I mean, that can be, that's not an easy place to be. Uh, um, but I do see what, you know, the benefits of it. And I think, you know, you say like, thank you for being also at 72. It's like, well, what the hell? <laughs> you know, what do I have to lose? I don't have any secrets anymore. <laughs> and, and, but it also relates. I told you, you know, I was, I was tired of them. I think that was part of what was making me exhausted was making believe of having, of thinking that I have to have these secrets that if people know they won't love me or they won't let me work here anymore or, or what will they think of me or what, you know, or whatever. It's just exhausting hanging on to all of that. So it's great to be of an age or of a mentality that says, I'm open. I'm I'm vulnerable, and uh, so the cats that I hang out with—that's that's sort of what we're about now, anyway, right? So now, tell us about your your role as a certified peer yeah. specialist. I was working in human services. It actually, was a jobs program in Philadelphia, big jobs program in Philadelphia. Oh my God, the stress of that was 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 enough um, as well, and. Um, but I was in therapy. You know, I had a therapist, John Burns, played the guitar like I do. We would end the session with playing a song together. It was great. And one day he pulls these papers out of his desk, these mimeograph Xerox things that you could hardly read. So I just learned about this at Drexel University. It's called uh, RAP, uh, Wellness Recovery Action Plan. Maybe you want to take a look at it. And I took it home and probably didn't look at it right away. <laughs> right? But I did open it up and, and read it. John was a good guy, so if he was recommending something. And here's what happened with this rap, with this wellness recovery action plan. There's a set of questions there. And the first question was, describe yourself when you're well. What are you like when you feel well? That it was not a question anyone was asking me. They wanted to know what the hell was wrong with me and why I acted the way I did. So for somebody to say, what do you like when you're well? Describe yourself. That was the hook. 
this was like in the spring. I can't remember what year it was, but um, and then RAP, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, Mary Ellen Copeland, older adult herself with, you know, there's an interview right there for you. Uh, they have their first wrap around the world conference in Philadelphia. So I go to this. I said, well, you know, I'm going to go to that conference. I like this rap. I've got a rap, but I'd never taken a course or was it part of a rap group or anything. I didn't know how it was just an individual thing. Right. And, and, and rap is a, it's a, it's just a way of organizing people's wellness. There's nothing sort of very complicated about it. it's like what do you like when you're well <laughs> what do you like when you're not well what are your triggers or stressors and let's do an action plan right let's be proactive about this so rather than wait until all hell is breaking loose why not have a plan in your back pocket? well here's who i'm going to call here's where i'm going to go what you know all of that kind of stuff so i go to this conference and i have lunch with a couple of people Yvette and, and Deborah, and they work for a place called Mental Health Association of Southeastern Pennsylvania, since rebranded as Mental Health Partnerships, right? So they get a little bit of my, we, you know, we're having lunch and we're talking rap and they hear my history and that I've done some uh, facilitation and they were trainers for the certified peer specialist. I never heard of a certified, what's a certified peer specialist? Well, you should take our training. So we, uh, so I did, I took their training. Uh, I was already a, a, you know, a rap person. That's something they train in too. But the, so I went and took the certified peer specialist training from them, not knowing whether I was, I was working already, whether I was going to get a job doing that or not. But within a matter of months, I was actually working with them. And this was, this goes back nine, um, nine and a half years ago now, uh, training certified peer specialists, which are folks with the lived experience of mental health, behavioral health challenges. Uh, and it offers sort of in part a career path, right? This is, these are jobs uh, in Pennsylvania. So uh, folks who want to help, want to give back, want to whatever, uh, believe that they can use their lived experience, that their story may be the strongest tool in their toolbox of helping another individual <laughs> who doesn't know what's going on with them and would like some help uh, that can relate. So I've probably, I don't know how many, probably close to a thousand people now have been in, in classes and that's a place to be in a class with other folks. And you say, and they start to tell their stories and you say, and you have a story of your own, but you look at them and say, how are you even standing? What, what in blazes makes you think that you want to help somebody else? Right? What, what are you talking about after all that you've been, right? No, you know, cause they get it. Yeah. They get and, it. That this is uh, I can because and the resilience. Yeah. 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 So it's, so it's, you know, so it's great. So that's anyway, that's how I got from rap to peer, <laughs> to peer support all by a uh, happy accident. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're in this role. And that started in your <laughs> early 60s. Well, I was then. Yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what was what was next or whether I wanted to retire. And I think I, I, I may have emailed you this, too. I have a, a friend that I had worked with years ago. Mark Friedman runs an organization. I guess they're out in San Francisco now, Encore.org, which really is about the antidote to our society's sort of like old people just 
put them out on the curb or, you know, we're done. <laughs> we, you don't have nothing to offer anymore and saying, no, we have this national treasure here of old folks, of experience, yeah. of love, grandparents, of, you know, of all of that, that we uh, really should be tapping into. So that was kind of in my, in my mind too. Well, now, since you, since you became a certified specialist, peer specialist, you now are a certified peer specialist for older adults. So University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Cynthia Zabritsky um, has a certified older adult peer support program, COPES, C-O-A, whatever, D-S, P-S, <laughs> COPES, Certified Older Adult Peer Specialists. And yes, I'm one of their uh, one of their trainers. So we do it. As, so if you became a CPS in Pennsylvania, for example, and other states have certified, not all states, but a lot of states do have certified peer specialists, becoming a certified older adult peer support would just give you a little bit of a edge on a specialty or might correspond to an interest that you're interested in working with older adults. We also have youth and young adult and LGBTQ plus, and uh, you know, so there's all uh, kinds of ways that uh, uh, peer specialists can find their niche and, and, and dig in. But I have, a, as an older adult myself, I've really enjoyed that affiliation with them and training that course as well. Wonderful. So what recommendations do you have for older adults who might be struggling with their own mental health concerns? Yeah, it's, I think for a lot of us that uh, I was just in a focus group too of other, of with older, other older adults as a a follow-up to that conference, online conference that you and I were at or attended online so I still see it, you know, uh, stigma, the taboo, especially in uh, African American communities, maybe, maybe other minority communities as well, where it's just not. There's enough going on without you know, having that, or or whatever the taboo or stigma is is about it. Um, so I, th- I think that's one of the barriers right there is for people to be able to be honest with themselves that I don't have to feel this way. I'm lonely. I'm disconnected. I'm, you know, whatever it is that's going on. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any easy suggestions as someone that was depressed. I know how hard it is to, you know, you do have to get up off your rear and, Go find somebody or some place uh, to you know to help, and that takes energy to do that. I do now. I live in a city. I live in Philadelphia, so there are there's a lot of problems here. Incidentally, if anybody reads the news, our big cities, uh, especially with young people and gun violence, it's just it's horrible. But so, but there are services and there are places and there's uh, you know community centers and and activities and peer support and people that want that, you know, that want to, that are reaching out. Uh, but you have to, you know, you have to reach back. Um, I know I took care of my great aunt, right. My, my grandparents did pass away. Uh, uh, they were probably in their sixties when they did, but, 
but my my nana's sister, my aunt Doris, lived to be ninety nine. So I inherited her. I inherited her from my mother, who passed away when she was sixty seven. Mm-hmm. And you just she was she had depression. I remember when we when we were young, her mother in law died, and she had, had an awful uh, bout with depression. But she stayed connected, right? She's always part of like these community, I don't even remember what they were, but community groups went on trips, would not abandon her car. She was banging into things. It was awful. I mean, you know, it would not leave her house or, you know, she lived there alone for 25 years after. But she had something that pushed her. She had good friends. And I and I I think that's that's the one thing. Now the dilemma is that we lose our friends when we're older. You know, you never know what the next phone call or that phone call at two thirty is. Oh my God, who's you know what, who died now? Right, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, uh, but maintaining those friendships, making new friendships. Um, peer support, uh, music. See, that's my thing now is is music. So my thing is, so I want to play for older adults. See, I always thought like, well, they won't want to hear my music because they want to hear old people's music. Well, Tim, you are an old person. <laughs> they grew up listening to the same music you did. So they, they will not be offended if you start playing a few Bob Dylan tunes. <laughs> Please play a few Bob yeah. Dylan tunes. Yeah, is so yeah. So part of it is on the older adults, right? You've you have to you know reach out and and want that, and it, it's 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 hard to look at. But I think, but part of the responsibility is for family members and society or groups that endeavor to do this. Then you have to reach out. You have to say, uh, you know, the John Prine song "Hello" in there. You have to say "Hello" in there. And and keep doing it. I, I I think sometimes in our world of of help is like, well, I offered my help and they didn't want it. No, you're like a, a beacon. You're like a lighthouse. That that message has to keep going out, keep going out periodically when the light comes around and it beams. And I, that's what recover. That's the was the recovery process for me. It wasn't that there was a lot. Finally, I don't know. Somebody must have said something. I know what it was that got to me. Partly what I'm saying is that, is that we, oh, and this is a, a wrap thing. This is a wellness recovery action plan principle actually is, is hope, right? But it's also personal responsibility. So if I thought, and that was a big one for me in wrap. If I thought, you know, that you were going to make me better or the doctor over or, or my wife or, you know, my daughter was going to, that wasn't going to happen until I, you know, took the reins and said, no, I want to be well. So there is a personal responsibility thing that, you know, people either do or they don't. But I'm saying the other, the, on the other side, family members and society or the community, whatever that is, has a responsibility, has a personal responsibility as well to continue to reach out, even if the person is reluctant. You just, you show up, you, you, you know, you show up. Uh, Pat Deegan, who's uh, one of our heroes in the peer world, was very ill 
schizophrenia, I guess, when she was 17 and was at home. Doctors, of course, said you're never going to get better. And her grandmother, see these wise grandmothers, see, this is the older adult connection. The older grandmother lived with a family and she would come down and say, Pat, I'm going shopping. Do you want to go with me? No, she didn't want to go. She was sitting on the couch smoking cigarettes and drinking Coca-Cola. That's yeah. Next day, going to the market. You want to go with me? No. This goes on for a while. Finally, one sees, but she's persisted. It's a, in, a, in an a matter of fact way, not not a, a forceful or judgmental way. You want to go to the market. Finally, one day she says yes, but I won't. I won't. But I'm, I won't push the cart. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eventually, she's like doing the shopping with her grandmother. So I don't know a silly story, but I think it's the it's that keep you know sh- showing up even even if my older friend is crabby, grouchy, doesn't go away, rah, <laughs> you know. All right, just want to see if you're all right. I'll be back next week, right? So you stop, you stop back, and who knows? Some days they can sit down. Tell me your story. Tell me, you know, tell me what was what was it like growing up? Or and that's the that's the the thing that we kind of started on. What's the shortest distance between two people? <laughs> Their story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us and all of your wisdom. Jim, do you have a guitar with you? God knows if it's tuned. I'm here in my basement office, right? You want to sing us a song? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do you want to sing us that John Prine song? I'm trying to. At an apartment in the city Me and Loretta like living there It's been years since the kids have grown A life of their own Left us alone John and Linda live in Omaha Joey's somewhere on the road We lost Davy in the Korean War Still don't know what for Don't matter anymore Old trees just grow stronger Old rivers grow wilder every day Old people just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say through the back door screen and all the news just repeats itself like some forgotten dream that we both had seen someday I'll go and call up Rudy we work together at the factory 
What can I say if he asks what's new? Nothing works with you. So if you're walking down the streets of town, spot some hollow ancient eyes. Please don't just pass them by and stare as if you didn't care. Say hello in there. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I cannot thank Jim enough for taking the time to be on the podcast today and sharing his story. The more we share our experiences of mental health and talk about our own lived experiences, the more I believe we dismantle the stigma and the shame. I also think it's incredibly important in terms of barriers for older adults receiving mental health care. Stigma is one of the primary barriers to older adults engaging in care. And the more older adults are willing to share their own experiences and their own stories, the less stigma there will be and the more likely older adults will be to access mental health care. So thank you, Jim. Thanks for sharing your story and your music with us. Now, are you a mental health or senior care provider? I have a free guide just for you called the Mental Health Professional's Guide to Working with Older Adults. In it, you'll learn the five facts that every professional working with older adults must know. To download this free guide, which is filled with lots of helpful resources, go to mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash pro guide. All one word, all lowercase mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash pro guide. All right, that's all for today. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review because subscriptions and reviews help other people to find this show. And the more people listen and the more people hear the lived experiences of older adults and hear from experts working with older adults in the mental health field, the less stigma there will be and the more resources there will be in this world. All right. That's all for today. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.